This is the process.ink. This is the process. I'm Tom Benedek, and we're here at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor in the North Quad on the sixth floor in the uh, Department of Screen Arts and Cultures with Mr. Jim Bernstein, who is the legendary head of the screenwriting department and a legendary screenwriter who resides in the Detroit area and has made his way in Hollywood for many years, has written the screenplay for Renaissance Man and AWOL and many other films. Uh, Jim, welcome. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. Now, we have a, I have a long history here with you in this area. I mean, you've been here forever, and I've <laughs> just been coming up here for a number of years, sharing a, a, a seminar with you. Yeah, and you definitely helped me build this program, so. It's been, I've been here 21 years, and I think, I don't know, you've been, you know, you were coming out in the fall five, six times a year for a number of years, and then the last four years, you've been out here for every fall semester teaching. Yeah, and it's been, it's been great. I mean, I really enjoy being here. It's a robust town to be in the fall, glorious Michigan yep. fall season, and the glorious football. Hey, Saturdays uh, in the big house. We're having fun. Yeah. We've had our downs, but now we're coming back. Yeah, this is, uh, this is, a, this is a big year for the Michigan team and for the town and for the, the blue faithful yep. all over the universe, yep. I would say. So that's an exciting thing. But you know, you, you're a movie guy and you, you're, you started out writing some television here in, in Detroit and then you moved to LA for a little while. But no, I never lived there, Tom. You never lived in LA. I never lived in LA. I've spent, like I like to say, I've spent years of my life, when you add it all up, in Los Angeles, but I've never lived in Los Angeles. I've only lived in Michigan. And that's one of the great questions that uh, many you know, screen people who are aspiring to, to work in, the, in, in screenwriting have, is do I have to live in LA? And you are living proof. Yeah, I was told when I first, when I first started, this is back in the, in the 80s, that I had to move out there. And otherwise I had no chance. And I told people, well, I know that's true, except for my mentor, Kurt Ludke, just got nominated for an Academy Award for a movie called Absence of Malice with uh, Paul Newman and Sally Field. And then he won on the next one for Out of Africa. And he went to Los Angeles less than I did. So I knew it was true, but I knew that it wasn't 100% true. And what I realized was I needed to be willing to go out there, but I needed to find good representation, and that was the difference maker. And so your representation was understanding about the fact that you were here, and you just had to, you could make your presence there when you came to town. Right, I just, well, I got lucky in that, I mean, I got lucky in a lot of ways. I don't know how far you want me to go back, but I started, once I decided that I wanted to write for Hollywood, I, thought back, you know, back in the 80s, there were a lot of television movies. And I thought, well, I should start there. I, I could probably do that. That looks easy. Like everything that looks easy was <laughs> not as easy as I thought. But I wrote one, and it was terrible. And I rewrote it, and it was a little better. And then I wrote another one, and it was OK. And then I wrote the third one, and I knew what I was doing. And I knew this one was going to be good. And I did this very fast. I did this within a period of a couple of years. 
And that third one, which was called Learn to Fall, that was based on a uh, true story about a friend of mine who was a, a performer who was going nowhere with his life, and then he started to volunteer working with this one autistic child, and that changed his life and changed his act. He had a European-style nightclub theatrical clown act, and he became you know, pretty well-known. It changed his persona, and it changed his ability to communicate. And then he had to make a decision whether he was going to stay, because he made all kinds of breakthroughs with, with this young boy, and the person who ran the, the, the school for autistic children was researching how he was doing this, using his kind of, as a performer, he could mimic whatever that child did. And nobody wanted to work with the child because he was violent and he, he was, you know, totally, they thought, out of control. So he was in a place in his life where when the kid banged his head against the wall, he was fine to bang his head against the wall. And they were just in a room. The kid bite his arm, he'd bite his arm. And they thought my friend was crazy. And then one day, the, he was sitting there with his kind of like his legs crossed, catching a breath, and he noticed that the kid was imitating his pose. And he reversed the game hmm. and taught the kid to speak his first words. And his parents couldn't believe it that here was this little boy they'd never heard say mommy or daddy or this guy. And he, he broke through. And it was that kind wow. of, and it was an, because he had been, he was in a low point in his, and how it completely changed his life. And then he started to really succeed with his act, and then his, you know, he, he had to move out to, to Los, <laughs> Los he, Angeles. Does he go to LA or does he stay? And he went. So I wrote about that, about that, and it, I went from not being able to get an agent to getting like three or four. That's wonderful. And I wasn't the brightest young writer in the world because I thought this is so hard. I, I'm going to pick the youngest one because I don't want to have to go through this again. So who knows if that's the best way to pick an agent? I mean, I'm just for longevity. Go, for longevity, because I thought to have them, to I, make them I, get I, health exams. Right, right, right. Uh, exactly. Get physical before you. That's a well, that, good idea. I wish I had thought about that. You never know. That's probably as yeah. good a way of judging as anything else. Too. And, and what happened was. He, it was a total fluke that I even, you know, found him because during the writer's strike in the early 80s, they were making a television movie literally around the corner from me in Plymouth, Michigan, a movie called Word of Honor with Carl uh, Malden and Ron Silver. And because I knew the person who was handling some of the production for him, she invited me to the set. And I befriended uh, Ron Silver and showed him Detroit, and then he introduced me to the director. They read the script, liked it, and they started to move it around. So I got an agent, and it went very fast through the system. The producer, Ray Stark, optioned it. They optioned it to CBS very quickly, and Timothy Hutton was signed to Star, and Buzz Kulik, who directed Brian's song, was hired to direct. And I thought, and here I am in the Hollywood Reporter and Variety, yeah. and I'm thinking, God, I've only been I've been doing this less than two years. Who said this business was hard? Then I found out. What happened was we got two weeks before 
shooting. And unfortunately, they had never nailed down exactly Timothy Hutton's contract. This was after Ordinary People, but then Taps was just coming out, and he switched representation. Sue Mengers came in and represented him, and she said, no, he's a movie star on no. TV. And CBS pulled the plug, and I went from, wait, <laughs> what happened? I mean, literally two weeks away, and it was, I mean, you know, that sent me for a loop. But you were in the game. I was I mean, in the you game. Were in the game, and, and yeah, you, were so, you just had to walk outside your door and two blocks away, there was a movie star and you just had to give him the script and, you know. I got, in the, I got in the game, and, but it was, is this game, how do I play this game if this, if this can happen? And then my mentor, Kurt Ludke, said to me, and this is one of the funniest things that anybody ever said to me, was, as long as you're not going to get paid, meaning I got a little option money, but I didn't get the full price. As long as you're not going to get paid, why don't you not get paid more? Which, <laughs> which meant, why don't write for TV, write a feature. And I it was at a party, and I think I was drinking away my sorrow, and I understood exactly what he was saying. Yeah. And so he said, you know those stories you've been telling me about teaching Shakespeare to soldiers? Because you, you, you were a teacher for quite a while. I was teaching Shakespeare to soldiers because that's one of the things I wanted to do when I graduated from the University of Michigan. I wanted to teach Shakespeare to people who would not have it if I didn't teach it to them. Not people at the University of Michigan. That's where you should get Shakespeare. But I thought it's the greatest thing ever and I'm, I'm going to go teach it somewhere. I've volunteered in a number of places and they all turned me down. I mean, I, I went to a senior citizen's place, knocked on the door, I'd like to teach Shakespeare, and they asked me if I could teach aerobics. <laughs> and I said, no. And they said, can you do macrame? <laughs> I said, no. Shakespeare, I said, no thanks. And then a friend of mine called me and said, you still looking to teach? He said, yeah. They're looking for an instructor at Selfridge Air National Guard Base, which is one of the few bases in the world where every service is represented. And I said, oh, soldiers? Uh, God has spoken. That's exactly what I'm looking for that I didn't know I was looking for. So I called the head of the Army Education Center, and I told them that I was going to teach, you know, they could take college courses on the base, and I told them I was going to teach English the way I learned composition by reading Shakespeare's plays and then writing about it. And he said no. And then I called him the next day and begged. I called him the next day and the next day and the next day. And he said, if you promise to never call me again, <laughs> I'll give you a shot. And it was great. And I did it for a number of years. But there were a lot of funny stories about teaching Shakespeare to soldiers. And this was like a weekly yeah. class? And yeah. it was like, it was that they were learning, were they getting credit for it? it yeah, yeah, college credit. Okay. But, but English composition based on, so Shakespeare. You, you learn how to write comparison and contrast, you're reading Romeo and Juliet. That's awesome. Yeah, and it was just the way I learned. I basically took my great teacher, Professor Russell Frazier, who was chairman of the department, was one of the world's top Shakespearean experts. I basically took his plan. He, he piloted this at University of Michigan, teaching freshman comp this way, and I took it there. And the, the great thing about where the base was, it was like only two hours from Stratford, Ontario, where the National Theater of Canada is, with the Shakespeare Festival. So I took them to their first play, seeing oh, wow. they could see it, and they fell in love with it. 
right? And so, but there were a lot of funny stories, and I would tell them to Kurt, and so he said to me, do you ever think about writing about, you know, what you told me about Deacon Shea? I said, yeah, I thought about it. He said, well, why don't you come up with a story, and if I like it, I'll option it, and I'll teach you how to write a feature. And I was, because we were friends, and I said, no, I don't want your, he wasn't my mentor yet, we were just friends. He was older and wiser, but it was like we were friends. And I said, no, I don't want your charity. And then I went home, and it was like the next morning, my roof started leaking. Yeah. I said to my wife, hey, well, work is work, you work know? Work. I mean, and so I did, and he did. He taught me how to write much of what I teach at the university. He taught me how to write a feature, and he taught me how to rewrite. Because my first draft, he basically, he basically said it was crap, but I don't think he said it that nicely. <laughs> <laughs> you oh. know, he's very tough. He was a newspaper editor. He'd been head of the Detroit Free Press. And how did he learn to write screenplays? I mean, what was his he, know, journey with that? His journey was, he'd been editor of the Detroit Free Press, and he was like 37, and he said, I've already had the best job in journalism I'm going to have. I need to try something else. And he went out to Hollywood thinking he'd produce, and they told him, we don't need you to produce. Tell us a story. And he told them the story of absence of malice, which is kind of like was inspired by the Jimmy Hoffa case about how the government works in terms of leaking stories and a story can be 100% accurate and 0% true. Mm -hmm. That's what, and, and like, Holly was like, whoa, what's that? And so <laughs> they paired him up, I think first with George Roy Hill, but then eventually Sidney Pollack. And he uh -huh. developed this relationship with Sidney and then he learned. So he learned on the job. He learned on the job. And then, and then, and he's very bright and very. And his rewrite process is to use use the tools that he. Were there specific well, things, or was it more just getting notes from him? More getting notes. Instinctive. More getting notes. Instinctive and telling approach. me what I'm doing. Yeah, what what I'm doing, wrong. I don't understand structure. I don't understand. You know. So, I don't understand rewriting because when I did my second draft. He said, "You clearly don't know how to rewrite." And then he, he invited me up to, uh, he has a place up in northern Michigan where for a weekend he was going to sort of put me through a rewrite kind of boot camp, showing me, just like tearing it apart and telling me what I needed to do. And I remember, slow down, slow down, right? <laughs> and it was just great. I, I suddenly got it. And then I wrote, I wrote the third draft and he said, this is one of the best, I mean, I've had people tell me they love my scripts, but this, because he's so tough, he said, this isn't all bad. And I thought, wow. And then the fourth draft, he said, okay, I think we've got about as far as your talent will carry us. And that, and that oh. was my first feature, yeah. four times over three years. I got it, I sold it and got it made. That was Renaissance Man. That's and so that's, that's where I became a believer Fantastic. in the in the rewrite process. And, what, and that you, script got me my first job even before it was made. So that was your that was sort of your break. Well, the other yeah. one was pretty much of a break. I mean, that guy. The other one got you presents. Well, and major here's encouragement. What After the TV deal, that young agent, he got old. Now he decided, after a few years, that he didn't. He wasn't really meant to be an agent. So he went over to work in development. I think he went to work for Ron Howard. But before he left, he took my screenplay, and just finished, which was Renaissance Man, and he put it on his boss's desk. And his boss called me and said, I don't know who you are or where you live. Where is it, Chicago? And I said, that's close enough. <laughs> he, said, he said, from now on, I represent you. There's not an ounce of fat on this script. 
it might take me two years to sell, I will sell this script. That's it great. took him nearly two years to the day. I said, you know, you could have said a year. And then he said, you don't want to know what I said about your second script. No. But he was great. His name was Stu Robinson, and I immediately flew out to meet with him. And at that first lunch I had with him, he said, he had his own agency. It was called Robinson Weintraub and Gross and & Associates. And, and he later founded Paradigm. I was one of the first clients of Paradigm going back to when it started. But when I first met with him, he said, what do you want to do? You want to move out to Los Angeles, I'll get you lots of meetings, or are you going to go back to Michigan and swing for the fences? And I said, I thought to myself, do I lie or do I tell the truth? And I said, no, he reminds me too much of my father, I've got to tell the truth. So I said, I can't move out here. I've got a house, I've got a baby, my wife's a teacher, she's not going to move, so i got to swing for the fences. And he said, fine, all I ask is, if I tell you there's a meeting you have to be out here for, you get on a plane. And I said, that's cheaper than moving here. And that's exactly the way it worked. And it was because of him that I really had a, had a career. And for writers today, you think that it's the set, that, that way of working can, it's just as manageable as back then. I mean. Mm, not, not really. I don't think, I don't think young, one, I think the allure is too great of LA and to a lesser extent New York. I said, you know, here I've, I've run this program for 21 years, but I like to say, I haven't inspired many people by my example, including my own sons who moved to Los, moved Angeles, to Los Angeles after they graduated, yeah. Which is why I was behind the Michigan Film Incentive, because I thought this would be a great place for them to make those connections, and it worked. And for three years, we had, our, all of our students stayed and got these once in a lifetime opportunities, because you're not competing with 50 states, yeah. you're just here, and they got jobs working in various productions and met people, that's why you go for contacts, and, and then other kinds of jobs in the industry they didn't even know about, and then it ended. And, yeah. now, and now they all go back out to Los yeah. Angeles. But for a writer, if someone writes a good script, they can make connections they can, out of there, course and they, they can. can make their mark, and they can say, no, I'll, I'll be here when you want me to be here, Exactly. and I'm just going to live where I want to live, because, you know, a lot of it's more, it's, there's more disconnect now, well, the, the emailing, and, right. you know, the, doing things on the phone, and Skype, Skype, and things. But the best thing about being a writer is you can write on the moon, right? Probably write a lot better. Yeah, you know, that would be a the, good place to <laughs> something try. Something the gravity, right. or lack thereof. And you don't have to wait. I mean, actors... You know, they've got to be where there's an audition. But you don't have to wait for somebody to give you a job. You can write something that you think is, is worthy. You can generate your own stuff. And, you know, I think the more, the more you write, the better you're going to get and the better chance you're going to have. Now, it only takes one great script. Great script. It does to, yeah. get you, to get you in the game. Yeah. And... And this, to get that great script, as far as going back to your formation with Kurt and your first you know, experience with really pushing it on your rewriting, being pushed on your rewriting and getting it to that level, how could you tell people to recreate that process? I mean, what was it in looking at your pages and the feedback you got and just like breaking it down and just well, getting that's, the momentum? That's, that's exactly what my re rewrite class is about. I look at the first draft of any screenplay, especially a spec, I look at it in many ways like a dream. 
You know how you wake up in the morning, you've had a great dream and you and you or a terrifying dream. You you tell your wife, you say, Oh, I just had the craziest dream and, and you repeat it. And all you're repeating is the story. This happened and this happened and this happened and and then you you, you say, what, what what does it mean? And that a first draft is like a dream. It's like that fever dream that you yeah. have. Yeah. And you don't know what it means. You don't know why you wrote it. And that's what the process of discovery is. Why did you tell this story? What what is it about it that you emotionally connected to and made you want to spend this time? Right? And you're it's generally some sort of process of self-discovery and you're going to find the theme or the thematic material you're dealing with and that's what you're going to ground your rewrite in because every scene has to be about about what the movie's about right it's got to be operating on a level where character story structures are all connected to the same thing it's not disjointed so you're telling one unified story and so I want to know what the story is really about, and I want to know really, you know, who are the characters, who's the real protagonist here. Sometimes mm -hmm. you get it wrong. Sometimes in the first draft, you have a protagonist that's not the most interesting character and not the journey, you you know, you really want to you really want to follow. I see that in students all the all the time, right? And and sometimes I had I remember the very first class I ever taught. Here we didn't have a rewrite class yet. The young woman say to me afterwards, "I just wish I could kill off both main characters." <laughs> it, was, it was a it was a mother daughter story, and they weren't. The problem was they weren't in the same movie. They they, they didn't have any scenes together. And I said, "You don't want to kill them. You want them to get in the same space and resolve." these mother-daughter issues. She had a great mother-daughter story that she wasn't telling. She was keeping them apart instead of bringing them together. And so sometimes it's simple like that. Sometimes it's, you know what, this is a, th there's everything in the script's not working, but there's one thing that's truly amazing. And so I remember, I remember another young woman. She was writing a story about a a private detective and I don't think she knew a lot about what private detectives do and this this kind of stuff but in this one scene she talked about the character talked about she went to summer camp and when she came home her mother told her that her father had died the first week she was at camp she was camp six weeks oh and God. the girl said well, why, why, why don't you tell me well, I don't want to spoil your summer. And I said, did that happen to you? And she said, yeah. Oh, and I said, that's the most real thing. You've got to write a story about that. That is such a unique thing. Underneath all of that private, so that was a really radical rewrite, but it was, so, it was such a great mm -hmm. kernel. So every rewrite's, every rewrite's different, but you've got to find what it is. And in terms of the individual writers who've had experiences with, what, what, makes it, what do you think makes a difference for the ones who really are able to seize upon 
their, uh, to discern things in their material or seize upon ideas that they get from you or from you know in class members, and then really execute that next draft. What's well, what is that? Th what is that mojo that people have to chase? Well, here's 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 what I think. I mean, I think I can teach a lot of things that are. It's funny. Some of the hardest things to learn are some of the few things you can really teach. You can teach structure, right? You can you can teach character arcs. You can you know you can teach story theme. You can make everybody's dialogue better. You can give them a visual sense on the page. You can do, you go through the elements. You can teach people how to tell a story. I do not believe you can teach talent any more than you can teach speed. Now you can. A good track coach can make you faster, mm -hmm. but he can't make you fast. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, so what I have noticed is students will come in and they will have, students who have two things. One, it's not the most talented student necessarily. That if, you, if, if you gave me a choice between really solid talent and mad discipline mm -hmm. and incredible talent and no discipline, I'm taking the first person every single time because they will maximize their talent and they will get better. Mm -hmm. Whereas a person with no discipline is going to get worse. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's the combination and you can see it because there's a passion. I had in my very first rewrite class, I had this student who to this day in, in screenwriting one where they, where they write the first draft and may pitch their ideas. I still think it's the best pitch I ever heard. And I couldn't figure out, how could a, how could a kid, 19, 20 years and old. He told this verbally in yeah, the class? Yeah, he, he gave this pitch. He totally sucked me in. It was like, oh my God, that's great, right? He wrote a very solid screenplay. And we're just about to start the rewrite class. And he came to me and he said, I, I don't wanna, I've, I've got a better idea. And I said, no, this is a rewrite class. You gotta learn how to rewrite. And he said, well, I'll have another script to rewrite. And I said, no, you won't. The class starts after Christmas break. It was less than three weeks. He said, I have a script. He came in and he had a script. And he did. He had an amazing idea. And it was a first draft. And then he saw the character relationships that were missing, that, that weren't developed. He found the comedic opportunities that, that weren't there and developed it. And he wrote this he wrote this script and it immediately became his calling card as soon as he moved out there. And now he's a showrunner. You know, and, that's, that's and the Craig Silverstein yeah, story. Yeah, he's, he's amazing. And so his, do you think that his ability to discern what he need, needed to do to, to get his draft to the next level had to do with what he sees when he watches a movie or watches a show that he know he's he's watched enough of them or read enough of them and he's he's analyzed them and he sees what those pieces are and he can look at his own work and see I think what that's the true. pieces that he has there or doesn't I have think there. that's true and I think he listens to feedback. He knows how to absorb notes. Yeah. Because I would put them in groups and they'd do coverage of each other yeah. and they didn't they didn't re resist it. You know? Mm -hmm. He and I still use his coverage, and of a fellow fellow student who then went went to UCLA, and got his MFA right out of, right out of here. Unfortunately, he was doing very well, and unfortunately, he died of a brain tumor. But this Craig Silverstein and Matt Reichel, they they tore each other's script apart, and both of their scripts were great. 
But it's the ability to, all those things you said, to be self-directed. Craig, mm -hmm. you know, he, he can watch and absorb and learn from, just like you said, and he can break it down and he can see it, he can take notes, and he won't stop until he gets it where he wants mm -hmm. it. Nobody has to, you know, hold a gun to his head and say rewrite. So I mean, he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna do a draft and then think about it and then do another and I, analyze it and I then mean, do another draft and another draft if that's I, what it takes. I, he's so self-directed that he's going to, and that's something you can cultivate to get people to be more self-directed. But I think anybody who walks in and says. I'm going to give you another script, and through you can't stop that person. Yeah. Well, you that's, know? that's drive. That's I mean, drive. D discipline and craft and talent and talent. Right. So you know, it's it's it's. But the talent part, someone may uncover their talent. Late. They may. It may take them right. a long time to dig for oh, their absolutely. artistry. Right. And they can start with discipline and craft and. Work to find the talent. I, I, right. Is that is that true, or am I being too idealistic about it? No. I, well, I I do think. I mean, it's like it's like watching any athletes. I you know, I once had a student ask me, "Is everything a sports metaphor?" And I said, "Yes." As it turns out, <laughs> everything is in fact a sports metaphor. Yeah. Well, the, the the physical, you know, the 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 body function and mind function. The right. mind, mind is. Is part of the body. It functions like the rest of the body in some ways. I mean, right. Right. At age 17, John McEnroe was not the best tennis player among the 17-year-olds. But by the time he was like 18 or 19, he was like at, at Wimbledon, you know, and mm -hmm. he was like doing very well. But it's it's that moment where somebody obviously has a lot of talent, but where the, the game comes together, mm -hmm. you know, and the, the difference between when you're at between professional top players and then the people who are in the minor leagues mm -hmm. of tennis, which is, so you take the top 100 or 125 mm -hmm. and then go to the next level. I did a screenplay on this, so I sort of know. There's three points that separate them. Three points. Mm -hmm. And it's a matter of, it's not that those people don't have the talent. Mm -hmm. It's figuring out how to get those three points mm -hmm. in key situations. And I think a lot of screenwriting and a lot of television writing is like that. It's, mm -hmm. it's about upping your game to a level yeah. that you, you know, you're ready to play. Yeah, I mean, so, so McEnroe, his greatest abilities may have been in some kind of dormancy, which he, believed, he, he felt was there, which drove him to keep doing it and get to that next level. Right. And some people may have may have thought that instinctively thought that he had it all the time, but they may have also felt like he may have been one of those athletes who was never going to fulfill this flicker of yeah. of potential that they that people may have seen along the way. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, talent gets overlooked or not properly evaluated at first. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean. The fact that, uh, listen, oh, for sure. this is the University of Michigan, the fact that Tom Brady wasn't taken until the sixth round. I saw him play, he was great. He was a great college quarterback, but somehow they felt, I don't know, what? His arm wasn't as strong, he maybe wasn't as fast, they give these touch, but they were missing mm -hmm. the it factor that he had. Mm -hmm. You know, the intelligence, the football intelligence, and just his competitiveness, and can you imagine? 
Mm-hmm. You you waited to the sixth round to yeah. take this guy. Yeah. It's it's well. How often do the first? You know, I mean, how often is the first, is the first draft choice really the the, the one? Right, but but, and, but you know, and that's one of the mistakes that sports I think can often make is because, and I think sometimes films and television shows make too, because it's the nobody ever got fired for drafting the fastest, strongest, yeah. right? Yeah. And so. Nobody ever got fired from losing their job if they put this movie star in this role with this director, yeah. even if the script was crap. Or not crap, but it just wasn't. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, I had yeah. Julia Roberts and Tom Hanks. How, how bad could it be? Right? Yeah. Well, there you go. And so like with your, going back to your, your experience with your TV movie, that was like you know. I mean, you. I was devastated. But you. But you. How how long did it take for you to pick yourself up and start writing again? Time. Oh, not long. Not I long. mean, you you knew somehow that you would you would well, you'd won a major part of the of a, of the game. Going, you know, you well, you'd, you'd almost cleared the table on that one. Yeah. And you, you, know. well, you had a taste, and you you wanted to you wanted to do it. And the other thing is, and again, this probably goes to why I make so many sports references. I think you have to be somewhat competitive to go into a, a very competitive field. And you've got to like the game, if you will, the challenge. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, sure I was unhappy, but I was like, nah, that's not, they're I, not I can't stop let, you. They're not going to stop me. That, that, that can't be it. I, ha- I have to have this stupid faith in my ability that I, that I can get this done. And, and when they told me, that it was harder to do it for Michigan, that suddenly made it a little more interesting. You know what I mean? It's just like, okay. You want to be the guy who does it. I want to be the guy who does it. And it's, it's like, you know, it's not always a good thing to, you, you, that's great in, in your screenwriting life. You want to tone that down a little in the, the rest of your life, you well, know? can is it is that po- I mean, how, do do we have different natures professionally and personally, or is it all you know just well, I think one you, thing? Yeah, I can. I think you can learn that you don't you know that not everything is a is a competition. It's not yeah. you know. But but when at what age can you learn that? <laughs> well, I'm hoping to. I'm hoping to get there. <laughs> My wife's hoping I'll get there. But it's. If you don't, and you know this, I mean, we talk about this a lot, Tom, that if you don't love it, don't do it. No. There's nothing, there's no reward that the making of film or television show or whatever we're doing digitally these days is, it, there's no reward that's worth it if, it, if, you, if you don't like it. You have to love writing. You have to enjoy the writing. You if to, you don't enjoy the writing, it's going to be, if, if the, even if it's very hard, you have to somehow derive pleasure, some pleasure exactly. and satisfaction. You may be a masochist to, to, ha- to, to feel that way, but you really do have to enjoy the process and look forward to writing, even if you know it's going to be impossible. Exactly, that day. exactly. And, and I, I've, often, I've often said, you know, you shouldn't do any job you wouldn't do for free. And I've I've only had well well wait no Jim you know what I mean by that I shouldn't have done those jobs no, I, yeah, you know let me but, tell you what I mean what I mean what I mean by that I mean as a career yeah there are only two things that I feel like I was that I wanted to do and that was to write and to teach and 
I was willing to do both for free, and I have done both for free, and I've been paid to do both. And, you know, I've still always looked at teaching, especially because I get to teach mostly at night, as the job that keeps me sane, because writing is a little bit of a lonely job. I mean, mm -hmm. it's you and your imagination, and it's great, but you want to be with people. Mm -hmm. And then the fact when you go out there, and I found that you are better, you are more focused on, you're more fundamentally sound uh -huh. when you're teaching others, because yeah. it makes you more aware mm -hmm. of what you need to do. And right. that mix, like, you know, when, you, when you're pouring out ideas and using your, your craft and craft skills and analytical skills on work of others in your teaching, how does that affect your creativity, like, the next morning when you're going to do your own stuff? It's, it feeds it completely? I think it, I think it feeds it to the extent of... You, you've kind of like primed the pump. Your mind mm -hmm. is working in those directions. Mm -hmm. You know, you're working on other people's stories. So you can do things much faster. You can process, you can look at your script because you've looked at so many, mm -hmm. right? And you can see what's wrong and you can see what the ways to fix. You can see other ways to go because you're in shape to do that. And you're able to sort of like treat your own script as if another another project that you're looking at, and not have this, you know, per, not not sort of be blinded by the brilliance of your own pages, so to speak. Oh yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching has made me much better at seeing what you know, reading reading a draft. I'm getting ready for the next draft. Working uh, with a collaborator out in L.A., Garrett Chip. I mean, we, it's it's much easier mm -hmm. to see what's not working mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what i mean yeah and and you know when you when like if you're starting when you have this when you're gearing up to do it when you look at a, some pages or a draft and you're gearing up and you know you're going to walk in and start rewriting i find it easier after once i get sort of in in flow with it and it's ha sometimes hard to break the crust and get in right, there right do you i mean do you find it when you're doing actually doing the rewrite that it's actually sometimes more fun and more exhilarating than when you were writing the, the draft? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. In that you can, you can see things. I mean, part of doing anything for a long period of time is your vision improves and the game slows down as to what's not working. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And you can see, ah, oh, here's, where, here's where you can... You, you don't feel lost like, what do I need to do? Mm -hmm. It's like, man, I got a lot to do, yeah. you know? But I also found, and I think this is true of what writing discipline gives you, what writing every day gives you, is you learn to write away from the desk. And what I mean by that is, you know something's not working. You know something's missing. You know you have a problem in your script, but you haven't quite cracked it, mm -hmm. all right? So, you know, often, because if I'm when Garrett and I are working on, on you know on the same thing at the same time, I'm going to be on his. I will start before he gets up, but I'm going to I'm not going to eat lunch till three, mm -hmm. because that's noon LA time, right? And so what I'll often do is I will deliberately wait to take a shower until three, because I know that there are few places where ideas will come to you without working. That they're just, because you've been working on it, they're in the back of your mind. When you're driving, mm -hmm. when you're in the shower, 
sometimes when I'm playing squash here at the university, when when you're on, when you let it go, mm -hmm. it's still there, and the writing process is such that it will suddenly you're freed up. Mm -hmm. You can't drive and think. You're on the other side of the brain. Mm -hmm. You know, only people who are learning how to drive are, who are dangerous. Mm -hmm. Now I put on the brake. I can drive from here to Chicago, and I can't tell you anything I saw on the way, but I can tell you what I'm seeing in my head, mm -hmm. you know what I'm thinking about. It's great. And so you just let your, if there's something that you're, you know, you're working on, solutions, and then you just go, okay. Well, do you put it, do you say, do you create a, a, a mental agenda for yourself? Like, I'm, I'm going no. to think about this, but the eyes, just, it's just like a percolation yeah. that takes place. I find myself going there to where the problem is, and I just sort of, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is, this is the scene we don't have. Just mm -hmm. make all the difference. And th and this is when you're on you're on a writing schedule or you're like in you're in the middle of a Project. assignment or a, yep. a spec or yep. whatever it is yep. where it's just like and what would be the time frame like how that's like over a three month period to get a draft or how does that you know and then you'll will you sh I mean chill away from that or is it just like well it, it it depends on the job I mean spec script you know you're going at your own. You're going at your own pace. I like to make the pace the same as when I'm, you know, being paid to write the script, and that's generally, you know, you're going to take about three months to do the first draft, and then you're going to step away a little bit, get some notes, especially if you know the people you have to turn the first draft into, and then you're going to the first thing to do when you read the notes is not react, <laughs> or you hear them, don't react. Like, don't react. Like. Don't just think about it. And no, don't, don't, don't look at it and say, "Well, that's stupid," or "What?" Well, no, get defensive. It's like the suggestion they might be giving you to fix it could be all wrong, but the problem that they're identifying that's not working is all right. Mm -hmm. And people don't care if you use their suggestion for how to fix it as long as you fix it. They've, you know, they've identified something. I mean, producers will do this thing, and I'm sure you've heard this a, a million times, and we do it as teachers, is when you're giving somebody an idea, you'll say, okay, bad idea, <laughs> but what if? But when you're the bad idea from a producer, it's usually they think it's a good idea, but they're giving themselves some protection. <laughs> and often, it's their best idea. And then you go, wait a minute, no, that's great. And they go, oh, really? Okay, use it. And I'm not, listen, if somebody's got a great idea for how to fix something, I'm all about it, yeah. right? Whoever's in the room who can help make it work. Whoever can that's... make it work, and that's going to spur something else that you mm -hmm. see. But if you're, if you're playing defense as a writer, you're going to lose. Because you, if you're trying to protect mm -hmm. everything, I yeah. tell students in the rewrite class, here's what I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear the reason I did this. It's like, I'm sure there's a reason why you did yeah. it, but if it's not working, what, 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 what difference does it make, right? Yeah. And then the other... When they start that, do you interrupt them or do you just let them say, let them just say what they're going to say about well, it? Well, I, yeah, I let them say what they're going to say, but, but it's like I will, all, I will tell them before the class starts what I don't want to hear. Yeah. I don't want to hear the reason I did this. There's two things I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear you trying to defend it and then I don't want to hear you attacking it. 
this is just garbage, I want to throw mm -hmm. it up and start over. No, 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 let's back up. Let's, let the rewrite process, let's look at what we have and see how to make it better. Let's not try to pretend that it's already perfect or pretend that it's horrible and it's got to go. Let's just calm down. And I think it's a natural tendency. I mean, I had a student, I feel like every sentence starts with, I had a student, but the student, he, he writes this story about this, it was really cool, about the guy was engaged, this is what happened, and then the woman tragically got some disease, and so he, he goes down to, he's living in Chicago, and he goes down to New Orleans, and he has this whole different weird kind of life at this strange kind of motel. And then, it's a really cool story, and 80 pages later, he goes back to his buddies in Chicago that have nothing to do with the story, and they're drunk, and they get in this tiger cage. <laughs> and I said to him, what's up with the tiger cage? And he said, oh, I know. I just, I just love the scene. I said, <laughs> I said, I do too. Get rid of it. And he said, I can't. What if I shorten it? I said, there's no reason. They're not in the movie. Then become a director, and yeah. then you can put it in the movie. Right. <laughs> and then he said, well, well, he's negotiating with me. And then I said, write a story about the knuckleheads <laughs> in the tiger cage. But he wanted, you, know, you want to hold on to something. It's kill your darlings. But yeah. I mean, this, this, I mean, we all, that's part of growing up. But you can't, you've got to be ruthless in terms of, if it's not working, use it in another script, if you know it's good. Yeah. Yeah, and so let's talk about writing partnerships. Yeah. You wrote alone yeah. for a long time, yeah. and then you got busy over here at Michigan, yeah. and you decided that you wanted to work with your, your cousin Garrett, yeah. right? Yeah, well, it was... It was, it was it, I'm oversimplifying. No, well, no, you got it, but it's a lot of it, it is you know driven by necessity in that before I started here, Renaissance Man was made, and D3, The Mighty Ducks, was done, and it was about to come out right as I was starting teaching here. And then I was working on another screenplay for, for Disney as well. And the producers of Mighty Ducks came to me in my second year teaching here. And they came to me in October and said, we need you to do a draft of this script that we are shooting in, it's gotta be in by Christmas. And I said, well, we, this is October. And I said, when you say Christmas, you mean New Year's, right? And they said, no, no, we're shooting in January. We've got to have it by Christmas. I said, I shut down for 10 days to two weeks to grade 20 screenplays. I got to get the grades in, in December. I'll never make Christmas. And they said, thank you. We'll go somewhere else. And so, I mean, at the time I was teaching one class yeah. for like five thousand dollars, and they were, you know, they were paying a lot more now. And so I said, I can't afford to teach unless I do something that I don't think I'm capable of, which is collaborate. And I got to see if I can make that work. Garrett was selling stuff, and young writer was coming on, and I said to him, I'm going to try to find us something, and that's where. I kind of came up with the idea, it was based on a true story, that AWOL was. And I remember I was just getting ready to fly back to Michigan. And he was sitting on his, you know, on the front steps of where his house. And I said, 
okay, what do you think about this? And I, I, I gave him the short pitch of AWOL, and, and he's, like, he, he's like tearing up and saying, stay, we'll pitch this everywhere. And I said, what? He said, that. That, that's amazing. So you were just telling it to him because your friend No, no, I wanted to test it. I wanted to test oh, it off him okay. to see if this would be something he'd interested in. And so we developed it as a pitch and, you know, we went around and we got a lot of people interested and we made it. We had a producer and we had Doug Lyman right after Swingers want to direct it and he came around and pitched it, got to the head of DreamWorks and they didn't want it. So then we realized, okay, you got to write it. So, you know, we wrote it and, you know, it got option and went through a whole bunch of phases and eventually it got made. Now, I changed the name when they sold it in the foreign market at Cannes to Love and Honor because nobody in Europe knew what AWOL meant, which didn't make me happy. But, uh, and it took years to get it made. But that was the first thing we did. But because mm -hmm. people liked it, they started asking for us. Mm -hmm. And so we've been working together, you know, since. And it's worked, it's, allowed me to keep teaching. And how did that, the process of making the adjustment from writing alone to writing with another person, you'd known him since you were a kid, but still that doesn't mean that the practice. Well, I knew him since he was a kid. I'm older than him. Okay. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was a, you know, we, we had to find our, our rhythm, but what we found was we could make, we could turn the time difference to our advantage mm -hmm. because I've written five pages by the time he's up in the morning. Mm -hmm. And then when we're doing a first draft, I'll bounce it to him. Mm -hmm. He'll rewrite me and go another five. Mm -hmm. Then he'll go to lunch, send it back to me. So we can do things, we can get through a first draft pretty quickly. And, and so when you guys are writing your first draft, you're rewriting as you go? I mean, you're like polishing, polishing pages and second-guessing scenes. And yep. And that's, when you were writing alone, did you do that? No. So, this, that's, so it became a different... It became a built-in rewrite. And what we'll do is we'll pre-write like crazy. I mean, we'll, we'll build the story mm -hmm. before we start. To what extent, to like treatment size or... Sometimes, sometimes it depends on the job, or, but always an outline, mm -hmm. right? No, we never stick to it, but mm. at least we have a game plan. Uh -huh. um, and if you're, he's still sleeping and you're like, there's something in the outline you're supposed to do, and you do you yeah. like? I know what scenes I'm all, doing, but you know the scenes you're doing. But do you ever just veer off? I mean, does it like do you always write exactly what's there, or do you end up like you know sort of? No, I tend to write. I tend to follow. I want. I want to. It's rare that I'll say I'm going to write. Every once in a while, I want to. You know, I'm going to. I'm going to write this first. You know what I mean? Generally, I'm following the plan. And then you know, every day we'll talk and go over mm -hmm. what we've done. But once we're through a draft. Mm -hmm. Then we take it apart together and rebuild. By the time we get to where we're getting close, then we're just going over. He'll read it and I'll read it, and mm -hmm. we'll each make our notes. Mm -hmm. And then the story meetings every day, every page, every word, we are going to go over everything we have a problem with. We are going to solve right there. And it takes, it, that, that's pretty painstaking. And that's where a lot of the back and forth of a collaboration can be, mm -hmm. where we'll disagree sometimes, and then you know, we'll find a solution that we hadn't, neither one of us had thought of. So how many hours a day together on the phone, or on you Skype or the phone? You speak We've the phone? We've done both. Yeah, I, I, ha I have one of those headset kind of things, so mm -hmm. my hands are free. 
like I said, Skype, we used to do it, but it's like, I, I know what you, you look like. Yeah, I so, you, so you, just, you just use audio, and, you, audio. and you, like, you'll start when he get what's up, and just go through, and just, yep. and how many hours you get, uh, how many pages we get through in five hours? It depends hours. on the draft. It depends where we are. But we'll, it's, it's no problem to do eight, nine hours a day. Yeah. Now, what that means is I'm going to be, I'm going to be working till seven, eight o'clock at night. But you know. and and that phase could go on for a month or two months or how how long? No, generally, when we get to like where we are now, we're at the end of a draft. You know that that process of go through it, go through it again, go through it again. Mm -hmm. That can take a month. That can mm -hmm. take three weeks. Yeah. And that's where we are now. We are at the very very end on this on this script although he you know our, our travel schedules were such that we had we are going to finish when he gets back to t to town uh -huh. next week okay right? and, and you've you've done a lot of um, scripts based on true stories your own and then a few things that have happened to you and things that happened to your friend friends and you know things that you picked up in the yep. news as well. Yep. So how does that relate into, I mean, did you know that you were always going to write those kinds of things, or wh what is it about true stories that you... I hate them. <laughs> I hate them. I hate them. And I always say, never again, it's too hard. <laughs> um, but, and, and most, you know, most of our stuff is not based on true story, but I've done a lot. And here's, here's, here's the problem. And that is, I mean, if it's something that's based on your life, who cares? You, you can fictionalize that, you're better off. But when, especially when you get the rights to somebody's life story, mm -hmm. you do feel kind of a responsibility. Yeah. And you want to keep it, I want to say, as true. You're going to dramatize or, you know, certain periods, but you don't want to just fabricate mm -hmm. a, a story. Um, Certain stories that you have, that you have access to, you you are up front and saying, "This is this is amazing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to hear exactly what happened, mm -hmm. but here's the story I want to tell based mm -hmm. on this." I mean, if it's somebody I know, like mm -hmm. with AWOL, I could I could tell them up front, "This is based on a true story, but there's going to be, mm -hmm. you know, some some heavy fictionalizing. It's fine." But when you're getting, you know, when, when you find the rights to a person's life rights you don't know, it's tricky. It's a sense of responsibility to the yeah. person and to the to what the what their life is and how they're going to be perceived, their family's going to be, or whoever their their yep. relationships are going forward. Early on, I had a job that I, you know, after I did the uh, the treatment and the outline, I had a major disagreement with the producer who wanted to change the story in a way that I thought that the, the family, it was about a, you know, a man, a, a principal who was a great principal in Red Hook, New York, was a famous story, and he got, he used to walk, he had this beautiful island of an elementary school, and he would walk the kids home, and he got caught in a crossfire between drug dealers and got killed. A big deal in the New York Times, and it was. I went and I met with the family, and you know, met, went to the school, and did all this mm -hmm. stuff. And the producer had a different view of it, 
that did not portray the family in a way that I thought they'd want to be portrayed. Mm -hmm. And I said, I, you know, I, I'm not going to do that. And so you should, you should get somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, having that feeling, that sense of responsibility, and then trying to tell a great story or trying to figure out right. how to dramatize what really happened in a way that's resonant to the reality. You know, we see so many things based on a true story, and I don't know what people well, think. I don't uh, know if people attach the people to the story. It's hard to know what people here's, here's what believe about anything these here's days. Here's what I often I always say to myself. Whenever I see based on a true story, I want to see under it. And nothing that follows actually happened. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But it's it's I mean, look, they're not documentaries. Yeah. I don't care what Aaron Brockovich's life was really like. She did this. Yeah. And she came from a pretty difficult place and did this. Yeah. I don't care if the guy, the motorcycle guy living next to her was the greatest guy in the world. Mm -hmm. In fact, I remember saying to, saying to my wife, I said, oh yeah, you know, look, all this guy wants to do is watch your kids, this yeah. great looking guy. And she said, oh, that only happens with the guy and the woman in every movie. Can't we have one? You yeah. know? I said, fair point. Yeah. Okay. And so, going forward, are you you have are you cooking on an original, or are you cooking on a couple of things? No, no, no. Stories that you have. Yeah, yeah. We're just we're just finishing up a, uh, a screenplay that was uh, you know brought to us by some producers and some guys from the NFL, and it's it's kind of cool. It's a fun one. And what's it called? It, it's right now the the working title is the Matai, and Matai means chief uh -huh. in, in Samoan. And so it's a, it's a football player, what's the football player's name is? No, uh, oh, the football players involved? Yeah. Football players who are involved are Ryan Khalil, who is the center for the Carolina Panthers, Jordan Gross, who played for the Panthers, Troy Palamalu, who everybody knows from the Steelers, and the producers are Colin Hanks and Sean Stewart. And, and they're all from they're all from Samoa. One of them is from Samoa. The football player Troy Palamalu. Yeah. No, Troy Palamalu is Samoan, but he's from America. Um, but we have dealt we have done our research with players who grew up in Samoa, as well as I mean. But Troy goes back there all the time. Mm. He's like he has a foundation young. back there, and he yeah. Has and Ryan goes back there, and Jordan goes back there, and they work with, and it, it's you know it's really cool how. This the, the farthest place in America from America, six thousand yeah. miles away from here, per capita sends more players to the NFL than anywhere it's else. Amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. It's great, and it's great. it's great. The culture is just so amazing. It sounds like a yeah. wonderful story and a wonderful arena to be telling. Yeah, stories. It's, been, it's been great. And okay, one last thing: uh, the the state of the state, the movie business, the TV business. You know, lots of you know. Many people writing screenplays, entering competitions, going to festivals, uh, watching movies in all kinds of different places. So, you know, as a professional, as a call, as a creative calling, as a profession, what's what's the deal? The deal is that, especially with digital, you don't know where it's going to go next, and you don't know why. If you had told me when I started that. Two years ago, I'd be writing an animated movie for a Chinese animation studio. I would have said, wait, when I was growing up, 
that's not possible, mm. right? <laughs> what? And yet it was great. So the world has changed. The, you don't know what opportunities are out there. You just know it's going to be different. And I just believe that if you can tell a story in some form or shape, people are not going to give up wanting to hear, see stories. Yeah, people, people need stories. People, life, life, people view life through stories. And people love filmed entertainment. So, but, you know. and, and stories, you know, outlast history. I mean, when you think about it, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, there are people who know about Julius Caesar, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. study him, but Shakespeare. Shakespeare's Julius Caesar is the one who, I mean, you know, Mark, Mark Antony, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. He didn't say that, Shakespeare did, and yet that's what we assume. Yeah. Because he captures yeah. what that's, in story form, what was that coup all about, yeah. you know? What human emotions went into a tu brute, you know, mm. the unkindest cut of all? Why do people behave like that? And, you know, Journalism gets the first draft, and storytellers get the next draft. You get to rewrite it a few times, and right, that's about, the one that lasts. Because it's about something that's bigger than just yeah. the people who lived at the yeah. time. And that those are the ones that are remembered have an emotional truth, and that emotional Universal. truth is what people. Of course, and, that, it, and that's why we keep telling them, yeah. right? Human beings are, if nothing else, natural storytellers and consumers. Now the technology might change the form in which they're told, right? I mean, who knows how much the iPhone will drive content or mm -hmm. whatever. But you know, the, the students would teach will figure it out. Mm. You know, they'll they'll figure it out and they'll find a place to tell their stories. So, as I'm like everybody else, it's like, huh, really? We're going to have another sequel. We're going <laughs> to have another. You know, another superhero. It's really movie. tell me that story again, Dad. Right. right. I want to hear it again. I like that story. Right. Yeah, I mean, but you know, every once in a while, you know, you'll. I mean, like this summer, did you see Captain Fantastic? I, I go, have not. Yeah, go see it. I mean, it's just you look at it and you go, yeah, that's that's why you want to do this. You know, it's just it's just a story that you just it felt so fresh and it was so cool and it was just you know and every year there's stuff like that that yeah. makes you want to yeah. want to do it yeah all right jim well, thank you Tom. thank you very much this was brilliant thank i, I love speaking with you here and uh go blue go blue great having you here Tom. and that's it for now if you would like a PDF transcript of today's show or want to check out our schedule, you can get it all and more at theprocess.ink. And of course, we're on iTunes and all those other good places. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Benedict.